What's up, guys? This is William, your host here at World of Wally. Glad to have each and every one of you back today. My guest today is a gentleman named Brad Cooney. And you say, well, who in the world is Brad Cooney? Well, the first time I ever heard Brad's name uh, was associated with a project uh, of that I have already interviewed some of the other participants. Uh, it is a project, a documentary called The House in Between. It is also referred to as the Mississippi House. It is a paranormal investigation that has gone on for quite a few years now. And like I said, Brad Cooney, actually the first time I ever heard his name was while I was watching the documentary as part of my research to interview um, John Bullard and Kendall and Vera Welton, Brad Cooney's name came up and then they interviewed Brad and I thought that's a pretty interesting kid. I think I want to find out a little bit more about him. And I wanted to bring him in and talk to him about, you know, a house in between. And, um, but then I got to doing my research on him and I found out that he had quite a few uh, things going on in his life well before he got started with that. He um, was a Navy guy, uh, you know, a veteran of the Navy, and uh, I thank him for his service for that. And also, uh, long before he got into paranormal investigation, he also was involved in the world of boxing. Now, he was never a professional boxer or even an amateur boxer, but he did follow the sport. Uh, he was a uh, commentator of sorts. Uh, he had a website where he tracked all that activity for boxing. Uh, so we had a pretty in-depth discussion during our time together about the, the sport of boxing, the state of boxing. You know, is it in decline? Is it on its way back? We even talked a little bit about the upcoming fight between Mike Tyson and Roy Jones Jr. Um, I posed a question, you know, had the MMA or contact sports really, you know, put a dent in boxing as a whole? And uh, so we had a really uh, pretty powerful conversation about that. He, he's still very passionate about uh, the sport of boxing and he's very educated on it. Uh, he gave me all of his contact information. So if we have a boxing fan among us listening to this podcast. Of course, we have a paranormal uh, fan among us. Make sure that you also, you can reach out to him and talk to him about that. He loves talking about his newest passion. So, um, hey guys, really interesting conversation with a guy named Brad Cooney. I think you're going to really enjoy it. And for you really, really old school cats, as we would call it, he actually started off his kind of his, um, his journey or his odyssey through boxing because he was trying to track down and find out if he was related to or had a kinship to a gentleman named Jerry Cooney. Now, for a lot of y'all... Uh, people my age actually probably remember the name Jerry Cooney. Jerry Cooney was a guy that um, I guess his claim to fame is he uh, had the opportunity to fight uh, Larry Holmes for the uh, heavyweight championship and Larry Holmes pummeled him for about 10 or 12 rounds before I think they finally ended it. I don't remember if he knocked him out but I think they did end the fight. So we even got a chance to talk about that. So um, hey guys after the break tune back in and uh You'll hear a chat that I had with Mr. Brad Cooney. 
just a quick word from us here at World Wally. Um, we are always looking for support from our listeners to help continue our purpose, continue our drive, continue our mission. Uh, here at World Wally, we strive to provide top-notch, compelling content that appeals to all ages and backgrounds. We do approach the podcast as a vehicle to deliver this information in a way that everyone, even the common man or common woman, feels that content speaks directly to them. We can only continue to provide thought-provoking and engaging conversations and guests with your help and your support. World Wally is nothing without you, the listener, and your support. Thank you from all of us here at World Wally. If you want to become part of our journey here as this project continues, uh, find out more at our Patreon link uh, at www.patreon.com front slash world of Wally. Uh, you also will be able to find it in the episode notes of each episode throughout season two. Like I said, guys, we couldn't do it without you. We don't want to do it without you. So anything you can do to help, we appreciate it. And as always, guys, Wally out. All right, guys, we're back from the break. And as promised to that, our guest, Mr. Brad Cooney. Brad, how are you doing this evening? Great, man. I appreciate you having me on the show, bud. Man, I am excited to have you on. You are just another piece of the puzzle of what we have affectionately referred to as the Mississippi House. Uh, for those of you that do not know, that is a documentary that was uh, created. Brad was actually part of that documentary uh, called The House in Between. Um, I shared this information with uh, one of our previous guests, uh, Kendall and Vera Welpton, uh, when we were talking about the production and the success of it. Um, I went back and checked. I believe it spent 17 consecutive weeks at number one as the number one uh, what they call real-life documentary in the world. So congratulations on that, Brad. Thanks. Thanks so much. It's actually still charting. Uh, last I checked in two different categories on iTunes, which is pretty amazing since the film came out on May 5th. That's and we're starting to get another little bounce now. I think probably because Halloween's coming up. Halloween's coming up. That's exactly that's what I was. I figured that's what's going to happen. Um, the crazy thing is, though, is Brad is not a one-trick pony. Brad has lived a couple, or, or even maybe three or four lifetimes uh, before this whole the house in between experience. First of the, the, the one thing that I did learn uh, when we first got started, his biggest problem is he's a New Yorker by birth. So, for all you Southern folks, I'm going to go ahead and apologize for him ahead of time. I know he's going to do something very New York before we get out of here tonight. I'm one of those damn Yankees. That's right. He can't help it. He was born that way. He can't get away from it. Um, we do want to, I do want to really, um, we, like I said, I do want to talk about the house in between. I definitely want to talk about, uh, you know, you're kind of delving into the paranormal um, investigation world, but let's jump back a little early. Let's let's get some of your back history. Uh, I mean, I just divulged that you're from New York originally. Uh, you also spent time in the Navy, and you are a what would be considered a boxing aficionado. You hear that? You hear that big word I just hit you with, aficionado. That's a that's a New York word right there. Yeah, I, I've definitely heard that word yeah. before. All right, yeah. so so let's uh, let's go back. Um, First of all, uh, well, let me let me ask because here's the deal. I've I've learned in I've learned through some uh, investigation and through some interview that uh, a lot of folks that kind of delve in, at any time in their life into paranormal investigation uh, had some type of experience earlier in their life that kind of sparked that interest. Were you one that woke up one night and saw your dead aunt Gertrude standing at the, at the foot of your bed or? No, no. I actually, I have never had any any paranormal experience as as uh, as far as spirits or ghosts or things like that. Um, I have seen a few uh, UFOs. Oh, okay. Um, that's you know, and I've always been intrigued with UFOs, and I'm kind of a weird, you know, I'm kind of a nerd like that, like with a uh, Bigfoot and and UFOs, and um, you know, just 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 things that are just 
abnormal. <laughs> so yeah, but as far as paranormal experiences with ghost experience, I've never had any experiences until I stepped foot in the uh, in, in the house in Mississippi, in the Mississippi house. So you lean more toward cryptid creatures and uh, let's see, Uf UFO phenomenon, the actual little green men theory. So. Right. Well, well, I mean, I don't lean. Any, I, I'm not really lean. I mean, because I'm I'm sold on paranormal activity 100 now with my experiences. But prior to being involved in, in the paranormal world, investigating, um, I was more interested in UFOs and Bigfoot and you know just kind of strange, weird stuff like that. So you're you're from the New York area. Where exactly in New York were you like born and raised? I was born and raised in a town called Mahopac, New York. It's about 39 miles north of the Bronx, north of New York City, um, in Lower Putnam, Upper Westchester County. Okay, say that name one more time. Mahopac. Some Ma people pronounce it Mayapac. Other, pe other people pronounce it Mahopac. Mahopac. Sounds, right. sounds tribal to me. That must be a group of Indians that it was named after. Yeah, it was, it was uh, the, the tribe was called the Algonquin Indians. Okay. Yeah. Well, that makes absolutely no sense with it being Moapak, and then then you hit me with a whole different tribe name. So, all right. So you, from New York, you're you're big into cryptids and you're big into uh, UFOs. So I'm assuming you had a run in with the Jersey Devil since you're that close to New Jersey. You've had a run in with the devil in, in your past. I've never had any run ins, but I'm well aware of that of that uh, of the uh, New Jersey Devil thing. But no, I haven't. No, I haven't. You know, I mean, when I left New York, I was 18, I graduated high school, and then I never looked back. I mean, I lived in the okay. South. Okay. So, yeah. so uh, graduated high school, 18 years old. Is that where your uh, post-high school uh, military, is that, is that, did they all kind of run into each other, or were you doing something yeah. between high school before you entered into the Navy? No, right right out of, like, I graduated in, um, in uh, I think it was June. And in August of the same year, 1984, I was at boot camp. So I like guess like two months after I graduated high school, I went in the Navy. 1984, good year. Yeah, yeah summer sure. Summer Olympics, yeah. The, the year of Carl Lewis. Also, uh, the great Van Halen album. That's, uh, rest oh. Peace, Eddie, rest in peace, Eddie Van Halen. Let's, let's take a moment here. R.I.P. Eddie Van Halen, top five guitarist of all time. I cannot argue that point with you. Yeah, man. All right, so, um, oh, and, and you're from New York, so you also were exposed to uh, the New Jersey boys, the Bon Jovi group, which you yeah, were... Bon Jovi was from New Jersey. I mean, New York, New Jersey is just a plethora of huge bands that come out of that area over the years. Well, you probably, you probably got a chance to catch them in a club well before they were established and thought, man, those guys, they'll never make it, so... I actually saw the band Twisted Sister. I saw them in a little place called Polos, and... Yorktown, New York. I snuck in. I, I was 16, and well, I actually um, I had some fake ID. I think my brother was older. My brother was 18, but it was a small, little, tiny, little hole in the wall. And of course, Twisted Sister went on to be a pretty big band. Twisted a Sister. Lot of bands like that. Yeah, D. Schneider, man, that dude. He's out there. All right, yeah. so um, you end up leaving high. You're out of high school. You end up going in the Navy, and they shipped you off to exotic locations all over the world. Pretty much, I've been in uh, roughly twenty, over twenty countries in less than four years in the Navy. Four years was, was four years enough? You didn't feel like you wanted to be a career guy? No, I, but I actually kicked myself for getting out. I mean, I remember, I remember when I had about thirty days left um, in my in my obligation. My, the executive officer of, of our of the ship that I was on 
called me in his office and he pretty much begged me to stay in because I was pretty squared away. I mean, E1 all the way up to E5. He was fighting. I went as far as he could in, uh, in you know, four years. Mm-hmm. And um, so he, he, you know, he, he saw some value in me and he really, really, really tried to talk me into it. I was actually offered $13,000 for a re-enlistment bonus, which back then was pretty good money. Yeah, that um, was big money back then. Right, and I just, you know, I probably changed my mind five or six times the last few weeks, and I just said, yeah, I'm ready to get out. But, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. I probably should have, you know, put a state in, I'd be in my 30s with a full retirement. But, hey, other things happen good, though, you know, so hindsight's twenty twenty. So you said 1984, that means you were right in the middle of your four-year enlistment about the time Top Gun came out. Yeah, I guess yeah. so. I can't remember exactly what year. Yeah, Top Gun, uh, that would have been what, like 1986? Okay, so in 86, I was deployed. I was over in the Middle East, over in Europe. Yeah. Yeah, Naval, uh, I, I saw some crazy stat that the movie Top Gun generated something like 38 point something percent increase in, in you know actual enlistment in the U.S. Navy. Oh, that's pretty cool. I don't that's know that's cool. a crazy number if you think about it. It is. It's very, it's very, that's a large number of people. Right. Movie, I, in fact, I watched it. Um, I don't know if it was on Netflix or, or Amazon Prime, but I actually sat and watched that movie again about two months ago. Yeah, I'm not. My wife, my wife kind of bans me from watching it because I we can't watch it because I know so much of the movie. Like I quote dialogue. I do a better job of Maverick than Tom Cruise did. <laughs> I forgot how good it was. I mean, I remember seeing it for the first time and I loved it. Well, the crazy thing is, is how much that movie would have cost if they'd have made it just ten years later with the with, oh, the, yeah. with the cast they had. It would have cost you know exponentially more to make it. Well, it it oh, couldn't yeah. be made. I mean, twenty years after it was made, it couldn't have been made. They couldn't have afforded to. Yeah, probably right. Absolutely. All right. So you four years in the military. You you travel the world. You've got all this experience. You come home and then and then what do we do? Like when you're done with your navy experience, like what what's what was, what was going on in your life at that time? I mean, I just bounced around a little bit trying to find my way. I was like 22 years old or something. I went back to New York briefly and um, kind of just trying to regroup and see what I wanted to do. I stayed with my dad for a little bit and um, and then I went out to California for a little while. I had a friend of mine that I graduated with. He was. Uh, he ran a 7-Eleven store out there in, in uh, Goleta, California. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have any real, honestly, I didn't really have any direction at the point. I was out of the military. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I didn't want to stay in New York, though. Uh, I was ready to get back out of there. And I got talking to my friend Mark, and he said, well, hell, man, just come on out here to California. I can get you a job, and you can manage. I'll give you a manager position at this little store, 7-Eleven out there. I thought about it. I was like, you know what? I'm down for another adventure. I have no strings. You know, nothing's holding me back. So I did. I jumped on a plane. I flew out to Los Angeles and and um, and went to work with Mark. And it took me about maybe, I don't know, a month or two to decide that I hated it out there in California. Yeah. Pretty beautiful state. I mean, it was gorgeous with the mountains and, you know, the ocean. But I just didn't click with it. With, it was just kind of weird. So the, I don't know. It was just kind of weird. I didn't get really... I didn't really click with people out there for some reason. And um, so then I ended up in Texas. Um, and I lived in San Antonio for 10 years, or right outside of San Antonio for 10 years before I got to Mississippi. And um, yeah, we ended up in Texas and I got a job working for a mental health, mental retardation center. And I got, then I went 
and um and transferred into the same field but i worked for the state of texas had a pretty good state job and ran with that for a while kind of got burned out on that and it was just another one of them situations where i was ready for another journey you know and i still didn't want to go back to new york so in 1999 i called my cousin who lives here in mississippi and she said well come on you know so i did packed up a couple of u-haul pulled the u-haul trailer from San Antonio into uh, Madison, Mississippi. Mm-hmm. And I was in 1999, and that's how I ended up here in Mississippi. You know, just in a nutshell. There's a lot of stuff in the in between, but in a nutshell, it'd be a five-hour interview by by filled in all the next I, I, I understand. I just wanted how uh, anybody that started off in New York through California, through Texas, ended up in Mississippi. So, yeah, well, I have my my, my mother. My mother's sister, she married Billy Langham. He was a Mississippi Heart Patrolman. Okay. And she met him because Billy was up in New York. And I can't remember if he was working for the pipeline at the time. This is before he became a trooper. But he was up in New York doing a job. And my mother's sister met him up there. And then they fell in love. And then he, he brought my aunt down to Mississippi. And they got married and had kids, which are my first cousins now. So my first cousin is only a week apart from me, so we've always been close. Okay. And um, so yeah, that's how I ended up in Mississippi was through my mother's marriage. And you made it here in 1999. That's correct. And and you put away all the stereotypes that you'd heard about Mississippi and the Deep South, and you've been here ever since. I put some of them to bed, and I also had to correct some some Mississippians on New York stereotypes. Well, that's true. That's true because I, I I probably had a few predispositions about you when you told me you were from New York, but uh, like I said, you know, you were looking for another journey. Well, trust me, if you came to Mississippi, you found that journey you were looking for. I love it here, and everybody's like, well, "Why Mississippi?" I absolutely love it. I mean, I've been here for 20, 20, 21 years, and I love the state. Now, yeah, it's not perfect. It's not in every state. I've lived in five states in my life. And Mississippi, um, you know, it gets a bad rap nationally. You know, and people, you know, right away want to think everybody's racist here, which isn't true. Um, sure, there's racism, but that, that's everywhere. I mean, there's not a state in the country that have racism in it. I mean, right. um, it, um, people think Mississippi is a bunch of dumb rednecks, which is, you know, it's ridiculous. There's some brilliant people that come that are from Mississippi. Right. And um, I, I love it here. I mean, maybe when I was younger, if I was 18 or 19, I don't know, you know, but at, when I got here, you know, I was in my 30s, up mid-30s or whatever, and um, I was ready for a little bit of a slower pace anyway, and so I, I really like the state. Yeah. Always have. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you on that. I'm a, I'm a lifelong. I was born and raised right here in the state. Have never lived anywhere else but the state of Mississippi, and it does get a bad rap. And I try to defend my state every chance I get. And uh, and I'm glad to hear. Uh, I mean, you're not an outsider at this point. If you've been here 20 years, you're one of us now. So you would go back to New York, and people would say, "What's wrong with you?" Yeah. I actually, it's funny when I talk to my. It's really weird because when I talk to my family and my friends, whether it's on a phone or whatever. They think I sound southern now. They're like, dude, you don't sound like a New Yorker anymore. But when I talk to people down here, especially those who don't know me or getting to know me, they hear the New York loud and clear still. You know, and it's like, I'll never shake the New York, but apparently I've picked up a little bit of southern 
um, at least from the from the perspective of New Yorkers. Well, and look at it like this: you might have lost your New York accent, but you swapped it out for some of the greatest food you'll ever have in your life, and the best sweet tea. <laughs> hey, and the best sweet tea in the world. Best sweet tea in the world. Best barbecue. And and good stuff. That's exactly Chicken. right. So, when we were talking earlier, and and I knew you had like a boxing history, I just naturally assumed that when you were in the Navy, maybe you picked up the gloves and, you know, kind of took on the sport. But you told me you didn't, you, you'd never been in like a That's professional right. match or even a, you said not even amateur match. You dabbled with it a little bit while you were in the Navy. Yeah, dabbled with it here and there. I mean, I've placed the gloves up and down in the ring a little bit, but I've never competitively do any kind of an organized um sanctioned type fights or um or commissions and all like that um i was just a huge boxing fan growing up and me and my dad my brother would watch boxing on uh, channel four nbc's world the wild world of sports wide world of sports right and he was boxing fan my whole life and then of course i graduated high school and went to navy and dabbled a little just played around with it a little bit but always a huge fan I didn't get into the actual sport as far as a journalist and covering it until right after, actually, right after I moved to Mississippi, believe it or not. It was in late 99, um, 1999. I was researching some things and I was actually looking up Jerry Cooney and we had chatted off the record a little bit about, you know, um, Jerry Cooney being a distant cousin of ours. And um, I came across an interview that this other writer, sports writer, did with Jerry Cooney. So I reached out to that writer. He had an email address in the article, so I reached out to him and I said, hey, you know, do you know where Jerry Cooney's living these days? I'd love to contact him and maybe get him to sign an 8x10 for me or something. Because, you know, I like to collect autographs and things. Right. So long story short, me and, this, me and this boxing writer, we started corresponding back and forth, and he wrote for some boxing websites and, and such. And so that's how I started, like, actually getting into the sport as far as covering it. Um, I started to write for some boxing websites and really enjoyed it. And um, what happened was I, I wrote for two or three different websites early on. And I didn't really like the way the boxing website owners were treating some of the writers and sometimes me. Um and I got frustrated and ended up quitting. And I said, you know what? I can, I can do this myself. I, I don't need to write for another website. I'll just start my own. I'll just start my own boxing website. And that's what I did. So I started a website called eCountNews.com. And we, uh, me and my friend Ed Anderson, he went in. He was a co-founder with me. And we built that. We built it up, man, to like one of the one of the top boxing websites in the world. We had 12 writers that, that worked for us, and and we had a huge readership. We interviewed the biggest names in the sport. Whenever the big pay-per-view fights came, we got the red carpet treatment. We got the press credentials, ringside seats, the whole nine, and and it just took off. I mean, I, I, then I published a book in 2005. Um, it was a compilation of a lot of the interviews I did with you know Hall of Famers and world champions and. Um, and then I started writing for Newsstand Boxing Magazines. I wrote for Boxing Digest Magazine, which is what Newsstand and uh, Premier Round Magazine, Boxing Digest. And um, my readership just got bigger and bigger, and things were great. 
and ecountnews.com was, was on top of the boxing website world for a while and then social media happened and that was the beginning of the end of the boxing website um, we were making pretty good money advertising we would have the boxing promoters would pay us um, monthly money to advertise their, their fights coming up right um, they would we would have their banners you know their ad banners on our front page and people would click it and they would go to right they would go to their websites and then people could see all these upcoming fight cards coming up so but once social media happened once Facebook and Twitter happened, these promoters were like, well, why should we pay, you know, ecountnews.com money to advertise sports when we can just accrue our own following through our social media? And that's what happened. So we ended up, you know, losing most of the money we're making. And, you know, writers don't want to work for free, so we, it was becoming more and more difficult to maintain a, a, you know, a list of writers. So me and Ed talked about it, and one day we said, you know what? Let's go ahead and pack it up. It was a great run. Um, met a lot of really good people uh, uh, and, and developed a lot of great relationships with a lot of big name people in the sport. So we, we folded up the boxing website and that was the, right after that was the birth of my podcast because I needed another challenge. You know, I got, I got to where, all right, the website's gone, all those interviews, all that fun. And we used to travel out to Los Angeles too and Manny Pacquiao would have his fights. I was good friends with Freddie Roach, the owner of Wildcard, also Manny Pacquiao's trainer. And he would, I would fly out there, I would get full access to the camp. And so all those adventures kind of like, you know, kind of dried up once we shut the website down. So once that happened, I needed another challenge. And, and that's when the podcasting started for me. Now, what time frame are we talking about here? Like, what, what period of time did, did that? That adventure you just told me about, like, how many years did that encompass? Yeah, it's probably been since we shut the website down, maybe about eight, seven, eight years ago. Uh, we folded that up, so I started podcasting. I'm trying to remember, I'm trying to make sure I give you some accurate information here. Uh, yeah, it's, it's been. Geez, Facebook, I've been on Facebook for 11 years now, which is crazy when I think about it. And I, I remember, you know, on Facebook, you can go to your memories. There's a new little feature they have. It's called Memories. Mm-hmm. And you can go back. And I looked, I looked the other day, and I was like 10 years ago, and I was posting, you know, I see my post about, you know, interviewing Pacquiao and Holyfield. And so, so it was shortly after that. So probably eight or nine years ago is when I started the podcast show. All right, so as it pertains to boxing, I got, I got a few questions for you. I want to get your right. opinion because you are – I am a novice in the boxing world compared to you. Like I said, you are a boxing aficionado. Um, first of all, what happened to the sport of boxing? Like, I mean, it was, I remember as a young guy, boxing was a huge deal. Like, a, a, a heavyweight fight was a game changer in the sporting industry. Um, you know, and then, you know, even some of the, the better middleweights, you know, were really good fights. You just don't see. I mean, boxing is not a sports priority anymore, for sure. But so, what do you think happened to it? Well, mainly the heavyweight divisions, the division that collapsed. Boxing still has huge pay-per-view numbers for some of the smaller division fights, like your Pacquiao Mayweather. It's about a hundred million dollar purses. I mean, there's a lot of money. It's a huge sport still with with the smaller weight classes. Um, 
you know, it's not as big as it was, but it's still, you know, it's still a pretty thriving sport. Um, pay-per-view numbers and approve that. Now, the heavyweight division used to be like the, you know, that was the division that all the Americans would tune into because we dominated, the Americans dominated the heavyweight division for years. Right. You know, with, you know, of course, Muhammad Ali and Frazier and Holmes and, you know, just, just huge Mike Tyson. Mm-hmm. And what happened was gradually more people, um, athletes that instead of choosing the boxing path, they would rather play football. Um, and they went into other sports and they didn't really pursue the boxing because only the top, really only the top 5% of boxers make any real money. Um, some of the revenue for like fighters that don't have, you know, promoters or, or it's, a t- it's really, it's a tough sport to make, you know, decent money and it's not really worth the, the trade-off. You know, you got, and then the amateur program also is another reason why boxing is not what it used to be. USA Boxing, you know, there was some corruption in USA Boxing, but then um, it, it's, there was just a lot of uh, red tape to go through, and there was, there was, you um, actually, Europe, credit to Europe, they started really getting into it a lot more. And, um, and the USA Boxing just wasn't funded right. I mean, there wasn't a lot of money. All these amateur gyms would start closing down around the country because nobody wanted to fund it. Nobody did. It was just dried up. So those are a few reasons, um, you know. But hey, heavyweight division is coming back a little bit. We had Deontay Wilder. He just lost his title, but he had a nice run. Um, you know, then the Klitschko's, of course, they did their thing. They're, they're not, no, obviously they're not Americans and they're from Ukraine. But um, so it's had sporadic comes back, but. I will agree with you that it's not as healthy as it was back in the 80s and even part of the 90s. It's, it's definitely taken, taken some hits, but it's not over. It's not <laughs> that stretch. Well, I mean, I, I know in the 80s and the 90s when I was a younger guy, you know, there was always that air of corruption. Uh, there was, you know, you know, rumors, and I'm not going to say rumors because I'm 100% sure they probably was some involvement. You know, there was mob involvement in the outcomes of fights. I, I understand all that. You know, I, that's that's what anything, anything can be influenced by money. I understand that. But back when I was a younger guy, I mean, I I could I could I didn't even follow boxing, and I could tell you who the head, you know, who the big boys were, the Tysons, the the Spinkses, uh, you know, Sugar Ray Leonard. I mean, guys like that. I mean, they were bigger than life. Uh, but the problem now is, I mean, I'll be honest with you. Unless I watched Graham Norton, I watched a Graham Norton episode where they had a guy named. Um, uh, Anthony Joshua, I think is his name. Yeah, he's a British heavyweight. I have no, I would have never been able to pick him out in a lineup, and he's supposed yeah. to be some type of heavyweight champion. He is a heavyweight. You, you know, don't forget. There's unfortunately there's just too many. That's one problem. There's too many sanctioning bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, you have the WBC, the WBO, the WBA, the IBF. Each of those sanctioning bodies has a heavyweight title belt, and so you know. The, 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 everybody's been hoping for a unification heavyweight bout to happen. Right. Tyson Fury's the guy who's the current. Champion. Oh yeah, it's, I'm, I'm gonna get to Tyson Fury in a minute because I got I have a, a theory on that. But go ahead. Well, I was just gonna say he holds most of the main belts except for the Anthony Joshua has the other one, um, and hopefully they'll fight and they'll unify and we'll see the 
Deontay Wilder will probably get his, his rematch because there's a clause in that first fight. So, well, Cass yeah, and Fury. Fury. Boxing's <laughs> huge. Boxing is huge. Boxing is massively huge over in Europe and in England. Well, it's still huge. Let me tell you what I know about Tyson Fury. Tyson Fury is an enormous individual. Uh, I actually was flipping the channels the other night, and I ran across him on a cross promotion with the World Wrestling Federation, World Wrestling Entertainment not Federation. And uh, and I, I've noticed um, with boxing, they're they're kind of trying to steal a page from the the wrestling industry you know the wrestling industry is bringing back a bunch of old guys you know for for fan favorite effect and trying to get you know their numbers up i because that's i was going to ask you about the mike tyson who's it mike tyson and um oh and roy jones jr uh the, the greatest pound per pound fighter in the world uh, according to jim lampley and a few others but uh what what are we what, what what is boxing trying to do? Like, what are they expecting to do with this fight? Well, the Roy Jones Mike Tyson fight is it's, it's an exhibition match. Firstly, um, now will it stay? You know, will, will it still have an exhibition feel? Will the first time somebody gets punched in the face? I don't know. We'll see. They're both alpha male monsters. I mean, they're both killers. So we'll see how that pans out. But look, I mean, the bottom line is it's an, it's it's being it's being labeled as an exhibition fight. Both names are still very very marketable. They're both in their fifties. They're not in their primes anymore. But if you've seen any, I don't know if you've seen any of the videos of them training. Mm-hmm. They look they look pretty fierce. I mean, they're yeah. both in great shape. So hey, I mean, it's an exhibition fight. It's gonna make you know it'll probably make a pretty pretty good chunk of money. Um, we'll see. I mean, yeah, I saw, uh, I saw a video of Mike Tyson the other day. It looks like he could physically pull your head off your shoulders and he's well into oh, his fifties. Yeah. I actually yeah, thought he was older than that. I thought he was around 60, but I guess he's, it, he probably would be in his middle fifties now. Yeah, he's a little younger than me. I'm, I'll be 55 in a few weeks. And I think yeah. Mike's like 53 or 54. Uh, oh. but, he looked, but he's in tremendous shape. What's crazy is like. Mike Tyson's physical condition right now, he's probably in better physical shape than 80% of the heavyweight division. Right. Uh, most of those guys are, you know, heavyweights are kind of sloppy and out of weight, but out of shape. So, he's not. And Roy looked really good, too. Roy's actually a really good friend of mine. We've known Roy for many years. We've known his father, actually, longer. I used to run into his dad all the time at the amateur boxing, pro- boxing fights, tournaments. But I've been friends with Roy Jones Jr. for 15 years, easy, at least. And um, so it's, it's fun to talk to him. I get I get a lot of the inside scoop on, especially on this fight coming up. But believe me when I tell you, they're saying it's, it's going to be an exhibition. But I think I don't know if either one's going to be able to, to restrain themselves. So it could actually turn into fireworks. We'll see. Look, Sylvester Stallone is still making Rocky movies. There's there's always going to be hope for boxing. I promise you. <laughs> yeah, actually, I'm telling you, boxing's not dead. Look at the pay-per-view numbers for some of the some of the lower divisions, and then they're still. I mean, prior to COVID, they were selling out. They were still selling out places. I mean, it's just the heavyweight divisions that when it took the big hit in America. And then Deontay Wilder brought it back a little bit there, though. Unfortunately, he lost you know, to Tyson Fury. But um, um, it's not completely dead at all. It's, it's actually it's actually doing better than a lot of people think it is. So. Boxing is is still alive. It, it's on life support, maybe, but it's still alive. It's still here. In, I'm talking about here in the states. 
Now, overseas, I, I, listen, I understand people overseas have a whole different appreciation for everything, okay? But I, but I disagree with your premise that it's, that it's on life support in the States. It's not. I mean, just look at the numbers. Okay. Still, the, the world title fights sell out almost every fight. So you also, under that premise, you also believe that, that the full contact sport, stuff like MMA, didn't, didn't take the place of boxing. UFC now that that's a separate that's a separate argument right there. The UFC un, unquestionably is a much healthier. Um, their their numbers are really big. Um, there's there there's more parity too that I like. That's one thing I like about the MMA and, and the matches. Um, there's some things I think Dana White should maybe do differently, like pay pay better. I don't think he pays his fighters enough. Um, but the UFC, I, you know, initially I wasn't a big MMA guy. I wasn't really a big fan of the sport, but over the last 10 years or so, it's grown more and more on I me. Mean, I really enjoy it at this point. But, um, so do you, you know, your question was, do I think the UFC, like, like, put the dagger in boxing? Well, no, I'm asking, do you believe, no, I'm saying, do you believe that the UFC probably is the major contributing factor to the, um, I mean, it's, it's simple. Boxing, when I was a young guy and, and now, because I'm, I'm 50 years old now, like, I can't name five boxers in the world, but I can name off UFC guys, and I don't even watch UFC regularly, but I can name off a dozen guys that are in UFC right now. Yeah, so, one, one, of the, one of the things Dana White did very good was market better. He marketed the sport of UFC better than boxing has over the past 10 or 15 years. Right. Um, so that helped him for sure. Um, the UFC's taken a little bit of a hit, though, also. They had a lot more star power, you know, back when BJ Penn was doing his thing and Tito Ortiz and mm. um, St. Pierre. And, oh, John. Oh, St. Pierre, that dude was awesome. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, um, you know, and then Conor McGregor came came around and really, like, he, he, he helped a lot. He's a huge star power. But there's been some ebbs and flows in the USC as far as popularity. But overall, it's definitely it's definitely doing better than boxing is um, yeah. at this point for sure. Well, I mean, I was I was just wondering because it seems like a lot of different things are kind of just chiseling away at boxing. Because, for example, I watched on YouTube a couple of fights, some bare knuckle stuff. I I like what is this, you know? And it's these two big bohemas. I mean, these two big rednecks up there just beating the daylights out of each other. And I'm like, I think I like this, but I don't know why. Yeah, yeah. Bare knuckle boxing is pretty exciting. It's you know, and, here, and here's another thing about um, boxing's very boxing's more dangerous than the UFC is, and it's more dangerous than bare knuckle fighting. Now, bare knuckle fighting in the UFC looks uglier because people bleed more. Mm-hmm. But in boxing, there's way more, there's way more blows to the head over a long period of time. Now, boxing, professional boxers, most of them, well, there's exceptions to the rule, but most most professional boxers had between 75 and 150, sometimes up to 200 amateur fights before they turned pro. Mm-hmm. And even with headgear on. You're talking about somebody that starts boxing when they're 11, 12 years old, and they have 200 amateur fights. I don't care if you have head gear on or not, you're still taking blows to the head. Yeah. And then they turn pro and the head gear comes off. 
and then they go, you know, I would say, I'll say, an average of a 10 year boxing career of, of blows to the head. And that's why you see way more former fighters in boxing that have dementia and they have uh, Parkinson's. Um, in, in the UFC or MMA, if somebody gets cracked in the head real good, more times than not, he's going to drop and the fight's going to be over with. Right. The other guy might get one more lick, and they like to do that in the USC. Like when they knock somebody out, they like to pounce on it and get that last kill shot in. Um, but there's way less blows to the head in an MMA match, an MMA career, than there is boxing. So that boxing is a pretty dangerous sport. It's a lot more dangerous than USC and bare knuckle. See, I've just learned more in the last 10 minutes about the sport of boxing than I've known in my entire life up to this point. So you are, you are a boxing aficionado then. Well, I appreciate it. All right, so uh, let's let's shift gears now. Let's let's kind of, I mean, that that sounded like a wild ride. That part of your of your history. Let's let's. Well, how do you go from being somebody that covers boxing and you know you're you're like I said you're in the you're inside the sport at that point because you're at all the events. How do you go from that to actually looking for spaceships and Bigfoot and ghosts and spirits? How, how does that happen? Well, well, just, just just for clarity, I never actually went out Bigfoot hunting or, or like seeking oh. like, UFO stuff. Well, I could get you in but, touch with a couple of folks, and we could get you on one of those. Well, I, I, I do have connections there too. I know some Bigfoot researchers, yeah. and some ufologists. Um, but as far as how did I get into the paranormal? As far as you know, you know investigating spirits and things like that. Um, just by happenstance, I was home one day here in Brandon, Mississippi. And I was home, I had a day off, I was just chilling, watching TV, and um, I was watching a news, a local news segment here, and they had a little, a little um, piece on Alice's house, and um, they talk about Prey was haunted, so, you know, again, I was always intrigued with, with ghosts and Bigfoot, whatever, so it caught my attention, so I started watching the uh, segment, and they interviewed, um, a girl named Erin, and Erin's in the film as well, and, um, and it just talked about how the house had a lot of activity in it, and um, I was intrigued, and I was like, wow, it's, it's, so it must be close. So I found that I was in Rankin County, so I reached out to Erin, who I saw in the news segment, and I asked her if, um, if it would be possible if I can come down there and, um, and check the house out. It's something really intriguing to me. So she said, I, let me ask Miss Alice, she, she owns it, and I'll get back to you. Well, she did, and she got back to me, and she said, yeah, Alice said, you come on down. So I drove down there. It was like, well, I don't know, I can't remember, three or four days later. I drove down there, and I met Alice, and she invited me in. And I kid you not, man, within, shoot, man, five minutes, ten minutes maybe, um, things started happening. And I was like, what the hell is going on, man? It's crazy. And um, I just saw some weird light anomalies in there. It's my first, I mean, literally, dude, my first, like, 10 minutes in this house, things started happening. And I was hooked. I mean, I was just like, I can't explain what happened. can't explain that. I've never seen anything like that before. And so when I got home that day, I was just totally like, wow. And so I started um, chatting with Alice back and forth. And, you know, I went back a second time. Then I went back a third time. And then I met John Bullard who's been in that house for years before I even got there. 
And then me and John got along great, and we started collabing. We started doing investigations together in there. And um, the rest is history, man, really, man. The rest is history. Ever since then, I just never looked back, and I became, you know, part of the team in there. We really didn't have a team at that point. It was just really me, John, and, and Alice at that point. And um, so, yeah, so so that's how it all, that's the birth of it. That's how it all started. Now, I, I actually own a copy of the documentary, and I saw you, man. You you got a real Hollywood look about you now. Um, my question is, how, how long, like you said, when you first walked in the door, within 10 minutes you were having some kind of experience. I mean, did you look at it, you know, logically, and you're, you're trying to disprove it or debunk it? It's like, that couldn't have possibly happened. How, how could that actually have happened? Let me think about this. Or were you so amazed and awestruck by it, you're like, man, this, so this stuff is real. No, I'll tell you, honestly, it's a great question, too. Honestly, when I drove home that first day, when I drove home, I was thinking, all right, man, so something either is really legit and, like, something legit crazy is happening in there, or they're just full of shit, part of my language, and they're just, and they just, they're just figured out some things, you know, they figured out some ways to move things. Um, so I wasn't sure if it was a fraud yet, honestly, because I don't know these people. You had to go back now. Right. At this point, I don't know. I, I, I never met Alice until that day. And so I wasn't sh- really, I didn't really have enough time there to really have a good grasp of what I was dealing with. And in fact, I actually investigated that house for a full year before I went public with, like, when I say that, I went. I investigated for a full year before I before I stamped my name to it. You know what I mean? Because as as we talked about, I, I I'm, I'm somewhat of a public figure. I'm all over the internet. I have a podcast show, and you know I'm a public author. And, you know, so I had to be careful. I wanted to make sure if I'm going to get you know really involved with something, I, I want to make sure it's not a fraud. Right. I want to make sure that they're you not, don't want to sound like a crazy person. Well, I just want to make sure that I wasn't going to be out there promoting something and then all of a sudden I turn around and find out it was all fake. Right, right. So, so I gave it a, almost a full year before I was like, all right, this, I've had enough experience in this house over the past year. I'm convinced 100% that things are happening in this house that are unexplainable. So yeah, that's, that's how it all started, brother. I'm going to tell you what, man, in your 55 years on this earth, you, you have lived a few lifetimes of some of the stuff that we just <laughs> talked about. Hey, look, man, before you get out of here, first of all, I want to thank you first and foremost for taking time out of your schedule because I know you got a lot going on. Uh, so I want to thank you for coming on the show. Um, I, before you get out of here, though, let my listeners know, you know, we talked about you were a published author. So let's give us your information about your book. Uh, you know, you've got a podcast. Give us that information, how we can check out the podcast. And, you know, any way that they can reach out to you, uh, you know, if they have questions, or they just want to follow you on social media. Why don't you provide any of that information that you want to give us? Sure. All right. So let's start with the film. Um, the film, The House in Between, is available on Amazon Prime and 25 other streaming platforms. Uh, it's on Dish Network, Comcast. Uh, I can't think of them all. But if you go to www.thehouseinbetween.com to our official website, you can click the tab that says Watch. You click watch it'll take you to all it'll tell you every different streaming platform you can watch the film and we got cool merchandise we have hats shirts hoodies um that also can be purchased um as far as my my book it's called brad cooney's let's talk boxing 
and it can be purchased at Amazon.com, it can be purchased at Walmart.com, at BarnesandNoble.com, pretty much any online, you know, um, bookstore, um, Amazon. I mean, it's, it's very easy, easy to find. Uh, my podcast, um, BradTooney.com, and I, I, I post my podcast over there. Um, got some cool ones in the works. So I'm going to have Juliet Huddy come in former Fox and Friends host at Fox News. Uh, we're going to talk some presidential politics coming up because the election's coming up. So that's my next big one I got coming in there. Um, social media, you can follow me on Twitter at Brad Cooney one and the same thing as Instagram. My handle is at Brad Cooney, the number one, so at Brad Cooney one and then you can just search me on Facebook by name. And I think I'm matched out I don't have any more room for friends on Facebook. I think I've had 5,000 in there. Mm-hmm. Ever since the film came out, man, yeah. I think that thing filled up. I think say so you have a bunch because I think when you added me as a friend, you had to drop a few folks, so I appreciate I that. <laughs> yeah, I did. I had to make some room. Um, and, uh, yeah, then I have a YouTube channel, too, and it's a really a... My YouTube channel is a real, it's a real uh, smorgasbord of, of things. I have some paranormal stuff on there. I have some metal detecting. I love to metal detect as a hobby. I have some podcasts, audio podcasts. I do have an interview with Roy Jones Jr. that I did. That was, that was actually in person interview I did with him, and it's got over half a million views. It's, it's done well. Um, so yeah, you can find me on uh, YouTube. Just search my name, and you'll find my page. That's it, man. I appreciate you. Man, what are you talking about? Is that it? You just, like I said, we just covered 55 of the craziest years I've ever heard of in the last, like, 40 minutes. So, uh, man, like I said, I can't, I can't thank you enough. And look, man, I'm, I'm close enough. I'm gonna, I'm gonna grab a copy of your book and I'm gonna head up toward Jackson. Me and you just gonna have to meet up and grab some lunch or something. You sign the book and, and we'll talk about some more boxing, some more paranormal, whatever we want to talk about. So, how's that sound? I'd be glad to, man. Sounds good, man. Look, hey, can't thank you enough for being here and uh, like I said man I, I wish you all the luck in the future I'm, I'm glad to see the documentary is doing well and uh, like I said it's a, a sport that I'd kind of uh, forgotten about boxing I'm glad you kind of brought that back you brought back some really crazy memories because I, I used to watch some we were talking about your, your distant cousin Jerry Cooney and Larry Holmes you know I, I watched Larry Holmes beat on Jerry Cooney for it, what seemed like 25 rounds one night so <laughs> Yeah, he didn't do so good, but hey, man. Hey. He got a little payday out of it. He was in there, brother. That's all that matters. That's anyway, right. thanks That's again, right. brother. And as always, guys, Wally out. Hey, guys. Join me, William Wally, every Tuesday and Friday as I share my thoughts and have engaging discussions with various guests, tackling all types of topics from religion, politics, sports, social media, and also current events, and everyday observations from my very own life. Just a small-town guy with some big-time opinions. Love me or hate me, but you will want to listen in weekly on the podcast, World of Wally.